So hi, I'm Graham Reimer. I'm your speaker for today. A um, little bit about me, maybe. Uh, as you said, I have a Bachelor of Theology. Not that that's much about me as a person. Uh, I'm here with my wife, Danielle. She's out with our kids right now. We've been married for seven years. We have two little ones. We have a boy named Luke. He's, uh, he's two, and he's hilarious and blonde and loves to dance. And maybe you saw him during the worship dancing. We also have a little girl named Charlotte. She's seven months old and just a delight. And um, I think those are really the most important things about me, those three people. So I don't know how much more I want to say about that. Our passage for today, which I will read to you, uh, I would invite you, if you have a Bible with you or if you have a phone with a Bible app or if you can find a Bible in the pew in front of you, to pull it out. I'm a little bit old school, so I don't have anything up on the screen for you today. So if you'd like to follow along, we're going to be starting in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Our passage for today is in Acts 16. However, the chapter breaks in the Bible are not something that were originally there. They're something that the church added. And this is one of those spots where I don't understand why the chapters happened where they did. The one that I really point to is Genesis 1 and 2. I don't really don't get that one. But in chapter 16 of Acts, it is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. And that story really starts in this last bit of 15. So that's why we're going to start reading there. Hopefully you've had enough time to get there. I'm reading from the NIV, whatever you're reading from. I hope it's terrific, but that's what I'm reading from. Acts 15, starting in 36, we're going to be reading through to chapter 16, verse 15. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers by the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Uh Uh-oh. Quick, save you guys. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit, from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down Troas. Yes, practice these place names. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Theatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. 
When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for church. Thank you that we could come together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to share. Lord, these people aren't here to hear from me. We're here to hear from you. We want your thoughts. We want your words. We want to be your people. Pray that you would be so tangible in this place. Amen. Our title for this morning is Big Vision. We're continuing in the series that you've been on called Big Church. This week's is called Big Vision. What is vision? Now, we're not talking about sight. We're not talking about, you know, my ability to see you when we say vision. Usually when we talk about vision in a context like this, we mean something more along the lines of goals, objectives, guiding principles maybe. And how do we talk about vision in the context of church? Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, I don't know about you, but for me, comes at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. These are the last words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, commanding his people. He tells them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is what's known as the Great Commission. This is the mission of the church. This is what we are commanded by Jesus to do. But a mission is not a vision. They're different. And I always found this kind of confusing until somebody told me that a mission is what you do. A vision is how you're going to do it. And suddenly that made a lot more sense to me. Here at Elam... Your elder team, your church congregation has come up with a very simple vision statement. I like the simple vision statements because they're supposed to be guiding principles. So your vision statement is three words, embrace, equip, and engage. And I love that it's in that order. I love that embrace is the first one because it means that the first thing that we're to do is not to turn people into proper little Christians. The first thing is not fix your behavior. The first thing is be part of our community. It's a principle of love. It's a principle of acceptance. It's a principle of togetherness. And I love that. I think it's so important. In Acts chapter 16, we see these three principles in play. I know I started at the end of 15. I'm going to just refer to Acts chapter 16 for simplicity's sake. We see all three of these at play. Embrace, equip, and engage. Embrace is a little bit hidden. That that one's a little bit hidden in the passage because it's not quite explicit, and really it's the whole context. And there's just one problem. We didn't read the context this morning. (laughs) Normally when when, uh, the ancient church would read books of the Bible, they would get up and they would say, hello, we have a letter from Paul today. Hello, church in Philippi. We're going to read you this letter that Paul wrote us. And then you would read the entire thing. So the context of any particular words in the, in the book are completely obvious. We have a tendency to read you know, a chapter or a couple of verses at a time. And then sometimes we forget what came before. So it's very important to remember what comes before Acts chapter 16. And before Acts chapter 16 comes Acts chapter... Good, you're paying attention. Or at least one guy is.
There's one big problem facing the church in the New Testament, and it actually comes up over and over and over again. And this is the problem of what does it mean to be the people of God? Now, in the Old Testament context, this was a relatively simple question. Because in the Old Testament context, to be saved was to be the people of God. And I think that we would still say that, that people who are saved are part of the people of God. That's, that's something that we would say. But to be the people of God was quite explicitly to be Jewish, to be part of the nation of Israel. And we get to the New Testament where Jesus does his thing. Can we say that about Jesus? Does his thing? Jesus changes everything. And the question for the church is, does being saved mean being Jewish today? No. I mean, I'm grateful. I'm not Jewish. I don't know about you. Chances are, statistically, most of you are not Jewish. They're a relatively small proportion of the world population. So I'm very grateful that that's not what that means anymore. In Acts chapter 10, which is what was spoken on last week, is a very, very important development in the life of the church with regard to who can be a Christian. Because up until that point, think, think about Pentecost, think about everything that's happened in the book of Acts up to chapter 10. Everybody who was getting saved, even the Samaritans, are all people of Israeli descent, Israelite descent. Israeli is the modern nation. They're all people of Israelite descent. They all kind of fit within that box of what does it mean to be the people of God. And all of a sudden, in Acts chapter 10, God says to Peter, summarize, in case you weren't here last week, there's somebody that I want you to go share the word with, and you're not going to think that you're supposed to do it, but I'm telling you to do it. And Peter goes, okay, you're God and I'm not. I'll I'll do what you say. And at the same time, God sends an angel to a man named Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, And in the land of Israel, he is basically everything that we would picture as an oppressor for these people, except that the Bible tells us that Cornelius was a very good man. He was God-fearing. He gave to the poor. He He was a good man. And God sends an angel to him and says, send for Peter and tells him where to find him. And so he does. And Peter comes and Peter looks at Cornelius, this Roman and his household and his servants, and he says, I'm not, I don't know about this. I don't know that you guys, I don't know that this message is for you, but God told me to share it, so I'm going to. So he does. And in the middle of his sermon, just like in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on these Romans, these, these Gentiles, these people who are outside the nation of Israel, the spirit falls on them and they begin to speak in other tongues. Peter and those with him don't know what to make of this except to say that God has shown his favor to the Gentiles. Well, this, this changes everything. So then later in Acts chapter 13, we see Paul sent on a missionary journey and he goes out into the area that we know today as southern Turkey. They referred to it as Asia or Asia Minor. And that, but that's the area that they went to. And many of these cities that we were listening here, Lystra, Iconium, Derby, these are all in that area. So Paul goes out sharing the gospel with what are primarily Greeks and Gentiles and non-Jews. And a controversy comes up. And the question is, how Jewish... Okay, so God is extending salvation to people who aren't Jews fine, but how Jewish do they need to become? 
Specifically, there, there are really two things that really come up. And the question is the, the, uh, the Jewish dietary laws and the one thing that you're allowed to talk about in church but aren't normally allowed to talk about in, in polite company, circumcision. How do, we, how do we apply those two things? And so, Paul comes back from his missionary journey and he goes down to Jerusalem to talk with the big guys of the Christian faith, the, the 12 apostles. And they have this meeting. And in Acts chapter 15, they have what's called the Council of Jerusalem. And they talk, and I would assume that they debate. But they come to a conclusion, and James, the brother of the Lord, summarizes for us in Acts chapter 15, verse 19. And he says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. What an amazing idea. We should not make it difficult for people who are trying to come to God. What, what a guiding principle for us. Like, how many times do we make it harder than it needs to be? How many times do we stack up, well, you should do this, well, you should do that, and, and it should be simple. Now, James does leave a couple of things in place. He says, we should write to them telling to abstain from food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So three of those really are still just a little bit of the Jewish dietary laws. And then there's the question of sexual immorality. So he's really narrowed it down. And then later in Paul's letters, Paul even questions the qu- about some of these food restrictions. So he's, James and Paul are really trying to make it as simple as possible. They are extending the embrace of the church as much as they possibly can. This is hard for those of us who have been in the faith for mm, five, ten plus years, because we also know that there are things in the Bible that are asked of us. We don't, those of us who have been in the faith for a while don't like the idea that people come into the faith and think that Jesus asks nothing of them. And I think it's because we've seen people who say things like, oh yeah, I'm saved, I prayed a prayer one day when I was at camp when I was seven, and I've lived however I wanted since, but I'm saved because I prayed that prayer that one day. And, and yeah, like that's, that's hard to stomach. But this is what the Council of Jerusalem has said. They said, don't make it difficult. That those things come after. And that being a Christian, well, Jesus took care of all of it. I mean, isn't that the point? Isn't that why we're here? Because Jesus took care of it? And I think the outcome for us is in Acts chapter 16, verse 4. So Paul goes out to bring this letter to the churches that he started. I mean, these are the churches that were asking the question, right? So isn't it best that you bring them the answer? No texting. He couldn't just text them. Right? He had to bring them a letter, or at least go see them. And in Acts chapter 4, Uh, 16 verses 4 and 5, as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. And what happened? The churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. It worked. It worked. They said, let's throw the doors open and let's make it as easy as possible for people to come to Jesus. And they did. They did. Can we throw our doors open? This is the vision that we've laid out. 
Can we throw our doors open for those who want to come to God? The second piece is the word equip, and this really is seen in the characters of this passage. So we see a number of people here. We see Paul, we see Barnabas, we see Silas, we see Timothy and Mark, John Mark, and Luke. Paul is somebody, we don't usually think of Paul as somebody who's growing in the faith. I don't know about you, I think of Paul as like the teacher. Paul is really one of my heroes of the faith, and so I tend to think of him as, oh, he's who I'm trying to be like. So I sort of struggle with the idea of a Paul who is learning. I mean, I'm not like opposed to the idea, it just, it just tilts me a little bit. Do you know what I mean? And when Paul first converts, the Christians don't trust him. Because Paul has been persecuting the church. He's responsible for deaths and imprisonments and terrible things that have happened to the church in the land of Israel during that time. And so when he converts, people go, this is a trick. But someone stands up for Paul. Someone whose name means the son of encouragement. And somebody stands up and says, we should get behind what God is doing, and I believe in this man, and I believe in the transformation that God is doing in his life. And that man's name was Barnabas. And Barnabas and Paul go on this missionary journey together. Barnabas is the teacher, and Paul is the apprentice, or the Padawan for some people. Mark is someone else who goes through a big transformation and learning. Mark, the actual story is in Acts 13, but there's not actually a lot more detail there. It's, it's pretty much just this. They got to Pamphylia, and Mark goes, I gotta go home. We don't know why. We don't know if he was discouraged. We don't know if he was sick. We don't know if he was bored. We don't know if his cat died and needed to go bury it. We have no idea. All we know is that Mark left, and Paul didn't like that. But Mark turns out, Mark doesn't give up, and Paul kind of gives up on Mark because he says to Barnabas, I'm not taking him with me. But Barnabas doesn't give up on Mark, just like Barnabas didn't give up on Paul. And Barnabas takes Mark with him on the journey, and we see that in the passage. It's sharp disagreement that they parted company, but Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. And later in the Bible, Paul asks for Mark. He says that Mark is useful to him. Mark is included in the greetings at the end of one of Paul's letters that Mark is with Paul. He's one of his traveling companions. These two men reconciled. And I don't know if that means that Paul got it together and decided to give Mark another chance, or I don't know if that means that Mark grew up and became reliable, but somehow these these two men became equipped sufficiently that they could be partners in ministry. That's very beautiful. And what's Mark end up doing? His book is, or his name is on one of the books in our Bible, one of the pretty important books. Mark writes what is generally thought of as the first gospel. Pretty important. Timothy gets picked up by Paul and Silas in this passage. He trains with them. He works with them. He goes about doing the work of the ministry. He becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was like the main city in that area. So for him to be the pastor of that church was a very big deal. This was Paul's, possibly Paul's favorite church, based on what scholars think. So for him to make Timothy the pastor is a pretty big deal. And of course, 
First and Second Timothy, letters written to Timothy. Here's more of the Bible that we have because this man exists. Luke joins up with them. Now, that's not explicit, but in 1610, the language shifts from the actions of Paul and Silas, they, and all of a sudden it becomes we. And so scholars generally believe that this is where Luke joined the passage. Or uh, not the passage, the company. Joins the company of Paul and Silas. And Luke, again, is featured in several of the greetings that Paul issues in his letters. And Luke writes the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the one that we're reading. Now, Luke isn't interested in calling attention to himself. That's why he doesn't make any big deal about himself joining. But he is honest, so he starts saying we. We see growth and learning among all of these men, and this is so important. We, we see why these four men are so important to the life of the church. I mean, Paul, Mark, Luke, these are, these are foundational names to what we know of, as, to what we know as the Bible and to what we know as Christianity. Timothy is only maybe one rank lower. He's, a, he's also very important. So thirdly, that brings us to our word engage and the importance of engaging. You know, something happens when you eat too much and you don't exercise enough. You, if you take in too many things and you don't put out enough things, negative things happen in your life, right? And we can tell. This happens to us spiritually. If you're taking in too much, not too much, don't get me wrong, but if you're not sharing out what you've received, you can become spiritually fat. And many of us in North America are. Not you. Look straight ahead. Definitely not you or anybody that you know. Don't worry about it. But maybe, maybe worry about it. Engaging is to take all of these things that you've learned, everything that you've been equipped for, and to put it into practice, to actually do the work of the ministry. It's to go on the missionary journey with Paul. It's to become the pastor of the church in Ephesus. But it's not just that. Those are big things. Sometimes it's as simple as going down to the river, to the place where people hang out and do their laundry, and chatting with some people so that you can meet somebody who needs to know Jesus. Engaging with the work of God doesn't have to be enormous. It's not rocket science. Something interesting happens, though, when we engage with the work of God. When we're following this vision, when we're living, working to live out this embrace, equip, engage, suddenly we learn whose vision it is. This isn't about us. And this is here in this passage too. In 16 verse 6, Paul and his companions travel through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. What? The Spirit said, don't go somewhere? In fact, he does it again. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So here they are, engaged in the work, trying to serve God, and I mean, it's weird that God's saying, don't go preach over there, right? Like, that's not really something that I tend to think of, that God would say, don't go preach to those people. But God is saying, no, go this way. And he redirects them, and he's saying, you think that you're out 
doing this journey so that you can bring this letter and this decision of the council to all of these churches that you started. And that's great. But I've got something else in mind, and I'm going to redirect you when I'm ready to, and I'm going to send you where I want. And so he sends, he forbids them by the Spirit, and then he gives Paul a vision of this man in Macedonia, and he says, Paul, this is what you're here for. You're not just here to, to share a letter. You're here to save people. You're here to work with me and do this work. And so Paul goes over with his companions. They go over to Macedonia. They cross the small sea there, and they meet a woman named Lydia. And because they were obedient, there's no miracle here. Like, there is not... The Philippian jailer that we heard about on the video, there was a miracle there, right? Like, there was this massive earthquake that broke all of their chains off and blew open the doors of their cells. And it was this astounding, amazing moment that the Philippian jailer couldn't help but look at and say, okay, (laughs) you win. I'm, I'm joining your team. That doesn't happen with Lydia. Lydia is a person. And she's a person like you or I. And we're trying, she's just trying to know God. And she has this meeting with Paul because Paul is doing what he knows to do. This encounter, although arranged by God by sending them over to Macedonia, is not arranged by God any further than that. God doesn't tell him to go down to the, to the river. God doesn't tell him who to speak to. Paul just does what he knows to do. And our faithfulness in those little things is so much of how God works out his vision. So what can we say for us? How, how does this apply to us today? Well, I think the first thing that we have to realize is that the mission is for all of us. We are all on mission all the time. The Great Commission isn't for pastors. It's not, well, I mean, it is for pastors. It's not only for pastors. It's not only for people who work in the church. It's not only for people who volunteer in the church. It is for all of us, and that we are all called to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. And we, we all need to be part of that. But there's nothing complicated going on here. And that's what I love about this vision statement. Embrace, equip, engage. There's nothing complicated there. This isn't rocket science. And if you really wanted to make it simple, you could say we need to love people, we need to get to know and love Jesus, and we need to learn to help others get to know and love Jesus. Those would be the three things. That's how I understand them. So how do we do that? Embrace, how do we widen our circles? I mean, what comes to my mind is working on our our friendship, our acceptance. I think this is a very friendly church. I've had a bunch of people say hi to me this morning. I've had a bunch of people greet me. Maybe that's just because you knew that I was the speaker and and I got off easy, but... It's been my experience that this church is very friendly, and that's terrific. So maybe the question here is more about equip. How can I know and love God more? Well, I think you're doing the first thing. Be part of Christian community. But other options available to you here, Elam offers the next steps classes, and they also offer small groups. And these are great ways for you to learn and grow in your love of God, your understanding of his ways, and to become more like Jesus. These are great next steps for you guys, no pun intended, if that's something that you need to take. And if you're feeling like you're starting to get spiritually fat, and it's time to get some spiritual exercise in, 
then the question becomes, how can I help others to know and love God better? And the answer there, I think, again, small groups chime into that because you start to take more of a leadership role where you're not only receiving from a small group, but you're starting to give back. But more generally, serving in the church is a great way to give back. Serving in other parts of your community. The church isn't the only place doing good, but it is God's place. So it is my first choice for if you want to grow. Serving, small groups, if these are things that you're interested in, that you feel you need to take the next step in, you can check all of this out on the Elam Chapel website. It's all up there. You can find information on it and speak to somebody here. I think mostly it serves to think of yourself in this story as Paul. Who is your Barnabas? Not who are you having a big fight with and splitting off with, but who is believing in you? Who is teaching you? Who is helping you to grow and become the person that God needs you to be? You need those. They're important. And on the flip side, if you're Paul, who in your life is your Timothy? Who is your Mark? Who is your Luke? Who are you building into? Who can you see the potential of God's call on their life and what God can do through this person and what they could be if Jesus could just get a hold of them and you're helping them? You're bringing them along on that journey. Who are your Marks, your Lukes, your Timothy? The kingdom of God needs you and it needs those around you. And we have an amazing call on our lives and vision to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance to gather in peace and to learn and to try to be more like you. We pray that your spirit would bring this word deep down into our hearts, that we would be good soil, Father, and that you would cause the increase of it. We thank you for the opportunity to be here. Go with us as we go. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.